You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome in to another edition of the Locked On Pacers podcast, where we, of course, talk about the Indiana Pacers as always. My name's Tony East. I cover the team for Forbes and the West Side Community News, and today, the post-All-Star break Pacers are here and playing and fun and going to overtime and hitting buzzer beaters and beating good Eastern Conference teams and losing to tanktastic teams. Weird weekend for the Pacers. They beat Boston. They lose to OKC. We're going to break that all down but not go through the games kind of, you know, what happened E because what happened for the Pacers is less important down the stretch of this season. It's more about what themes can develop and what stuff can be used going forward. It's rare covering the Pacers for the last half decade they're always focused on wins and where they can go but this is the first time that you know the wins and losses matter but it's more about the what it's really granular stuff that matters a lot for this team going forward talk about that kind of stuff then i want to talk about two halberton themed pairings that stood out to me in these games one being the big one brogdon plus halberton how does that duo look together drawing lots of praise from teammates and head coach rick carlisle and then at the end we're talking about rick carlisle's front court rotation because i just kind of shrug at this point have no idea What's going on there? We'll start with the weekend, though. Pacers losing overtime to the Thunder. Fun game, 129-125, the final. Really back-and-forth affair. Lance Stevenson hit an awesome buzzer beater at the end of regulation to send it to overtime. Ends up hurting his ankle in the game and missing the Celtics game, but you know it's fun. His shot was awesome and awe-inspiring, and then he used it to shoot himself out of the game, and he missed five shots in overtime, and they only scored two points in that overtime on their way to a loss. And then they play the Celtics on Sunday, sixth in the East, absolutely rolling recently. They won a game last night, two nights ago, if you're listening. Duarte returns, Lance is out, and they just steamroll Boston. I mean, uh, one of the best of Pacers defensive games in a long time. Four guys scored 20 points, six in double, seven in double figures. So a weird weekend. They lose to an OKC team that they're happy to hand a win to as this tank race heats up. And then they beat Boston, which doesn't really help the tank race. But here's the thing I'll say about the Boston win and something that I think people will need to look at with the standings. The Cavs pick that the Pacers have requires the Cavs to make the playoffs for the Pacers to get it this year. And then the Cavs are, I would say, above 50% to make the playoffs. But like it's not a lock with the play in there and how good some of these other teams in the East are heating up. So beating a team like Boston and helping the Cavs make the playoffs, I still think is okay as it could help the Pacers keep their other first. But obviously, you know, in the Pacers' position, losses are nice as they approach the top. But still, I mean, I think this team needs to bank wins and confidence with their new young players. Talking about tanking is lame and boring. So let's talk about what happened in these games. Again, Pacers split the pair. And some themes that I saw that caught my eye and I thought were important. And the first one that isn't necessarily – Catch eye-catching important. It's just Malcolm Brogdon is back. He played three games between Christmas and the All-Star break. And one of those games, he played seven minutes. This weekend, he played both games. He played almost or above 30 minutes in both of them. No Achilles issues. Played very well in both. Minus one and a four-point loss against OKC. They were winning in the three quarters that he actually played in that game. He sat the fourth and the rest. He sits the fourth against Boston as well. And as a ho-hum Plus 24, 20 points, 6 rebounds, 5 assists. I continue to not understand how fans view this guy. Malcolm Brogdon is very good. Rick Carlisle loves Malcolm Brogdon. He guards the other team's best player a lot. He fit very well with Halliburton. He did a great job guiding the offense and providing both primary and secondary creation, depending on who was in. I think that's very important is that he showed he could find both. You know, Jalen Smith called him a glue guy, and that's not really a term you'd use to describe Malcolm Brogdon. 
in the past, but on this new look Pacers team, that's what they need him to be is more of that connecting secondary player. And he certainly was that in his first weekend with the new team, which I think is key. First weekend, we got to see more sample to see where this can go. But I thought he played very well in both games, especially considering how little he played. He did not get hurt in both. Like I was joking with some other, you know, people who write about this team and are in this data. So this game, like the last time Brogdon played more than 30 minutes prior to this weekend, Brad Wanamaker was still on the Pacers. Like that's how long it's been since we've seen this guy play this much and have this much of an impact. But 15 points uh, in their first game, no turnovers looked solid. Again, 26-5 and five in their second game this weekend. So Malcolm Brogdon back and looking good. That's big for the prospectus of this team because a big evaluation point for the rest of their season is how does Malcolm Brogdon fit with their core and how does he fit with Tyrese Halbert? We'll talk about that in the second segment because, look, I get the thought that maybe they want to get trade him this summer if they want to stay young, but – doesn't sound like that's the case. Kevin Pritchard said they want to be good next year. Rick Carlisle thinks they can be good already. He loves Malcolm Brogdon. He thinks he adds a lot of value to their young core and their value to winning. I don't think necessarily the he doesn't match their age thing holds up unless they show this summer that they're still a rebuilding team. So it's very important to track, to me, how well he fits with this group, especially because he could be a big part of this team next year as a starter at some position. It doesn't matter. You know, something I want to talk about here just shortly, this is not in my notes, but Rick Carlisle said something after the game that merits discussion. People are really caught up in who's the point guard and who's the shooting guard between Brogdon and Halliburton. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. They both get very similar touches. We'll talk about that in the next segment. And they both pass a lot, and they both are off ball enough that it doesn't matter. They're basically doing the same role. And the reason I want to bring Rick Carlisle in is he talked about after the Celtics game, right? When he got drafted in the 1980s, it wasn't really called point guard and shooting guard or one and two or whatever terminology you use now they just call that guard you played guard right that is the perfect way to talk about this Pacers team and the NBA is very much positionless now or more so than it used to be but they're guards right it doesn't matter which one's listed first in the starting lineup it doesn't matter how it's typed it doesn't matter what position is next to their name on the box score they're just guards they fit well together as of now it looks looks like they do at least they both have skills that work well together they can make bending defenses break and they both can pass well enough better than Levert especially, to be more complimentary than the old Pacers backcourt. Not necessarily saying it's better yet, but it will be, certainly. And their skills fit very well together. So Brogdon returned. I think that was my first theme from these games. He looked good. He fit well with the team. And he could play guard for them. The shining standout to me, at least compared to my expectations, O'Shea Brissett was very good in both of these games. He continues to be a guy that the new Pacers who play fast and random and free and they're calling more plays on the fly than walking it up and setting slow. And the old Pacers played fast too, but definitely had more play calls and were pushing up with slower players. O'Shea Brissett is just flying all over the place. 10 points and 15 rebounds against OKC. Five offensive rebounds that game. He does a lot of damage on defense in that game as well. If his three ball was falling, they would have won that game for sure. Then against the Celtics, his three ball was falling. He had a career-high six threes. 27.6 rebounds plus 25 game-high for either team, they smacked the Celtics news in the game, 9 for 14 overall. He likes playing with Halliburton because his random cutting and his athleticism really stands out more. His defense has been wonderful for this team as a team defender all season. His on-ball defense still not as shaky, but not as good as his team defense, but still good. He was very excellent all weekend, and he has been very excellent since the trades were made. You know, Torrey Craig's not starting anymore. He can start. He can play more free since he's playing the four and the three. This team fits well for him, and I think that's something to monitor going forward is maybe he can be a wing on the next iteration of the Good Pacers. Who knows? But he was very, very good this weekend. I talked about Brogdon being back. Someone else who returned, Isaiah Jackson, was back this weekend after getting hurt just before the break. 
Uh, 17 and 6 plus 12, and I lost against OKC. Very good on both ends. Foul trouble. Looked like it was going to be a problem for him, and then it wasn't. He had five blocks as well. He's just a beast, man. Like, I think here's a prediction for Isaiah Jackson's career. I think more than once he's going to lead the league in blocked three point attempts. When he plays the four, he can certainly get out there and get him. He did a good job of that this weekend against the Celtics. Again, plus four, 11 points, four rebounds, three blocks. He's just everywhere. He can run everywhere on defense. His lob threat game is ridiculous. And he will also be featured in the second segment of guys I like their pairing with Halberton because I'm starting to dig Isaiah Jackson plus Tyrese Halberton minutes. It was good to see him back on the floor. He played well in both games. Duarte returned on Sunday. He did not play against OKC, although he almost did. He did play against the Celtics. First game back from this was actually like a two and a half week, three week toe injury thing. It doesn't seem that long because he only missed a few games due to the All Star break, but. 11 points, 4 of 11, plus 7 with him in the game. Definitely working his way back, but looked fine. Fit in well with, with the second unit there. He didn't start. That's the only thing I want to monitor with Duarte is once he's healthier, does he move into the starting lineup or does Rick continue to roll with Buddy Heald, who he very much likes in the terms of the spacing and value that he adds on the floor? We'll see what Duarte can do going forward. And my last note from these games, I just typed random Rick. This is not a criticism necessarily, but Carlisle is really experimenting with lineups, something Tyler Smith and I talked about on Friday's podcast is something the Pacers should focus on the rest of the season is getting lots of funky lineups out there. And, you know, some of this is just a factor of, okay, Duarte wasn't and then was available and Lance was available and then wasn't available, right? Like literally who they had had to be different in both games, but especially in the front court, and I'll talk about this in the third segment today, he was really mixing and matching pairings. Jalen Smith at the four, Jalen Smith at the five. He did stuff with, you know, Malcolm Brogdon, two, three, one. Brogdon running the bench. Uh, sometimes Dwayne Washington was running the bench. Halliburton was playing all these positions. You know, you can, you can go a number of directions with how you want to talk about this. But he was really mixing and matching, and I think that's important. Get a lot of lineup data. Figure out what this team is. Figure out who can be good as they grow. So some of it felt a bit random and not what I would do, but I'm not in charge of the team. Uh, but I think that was noteworthy that – they were being a little more all over the place. Now, some of it feels like stuff that should be changed, and some of it feels like stuff that you continue to experiment. I'll get to that at the end when we talk about the front court. Let's talk about Tyrese Halberton Again, I know he's been the subject of a lot of stuff on this show, but he will be. I mean, he is the face of the franchise now. Two pairings that I think are noteworthy for him, one with his new backcourt partner and one with potentially his best pick-and-roll partner now uh, going forward. So let's take a little break and talk about that, but... First, let's talk about the good folks over at Built Bar because it's the time of year that a lot of you have given up on your New Year's resolutions, but not this year. Stick to it. Try Built Bar, and I promise it'll help you. Stick to your resolutions because they are the best tasting protein bars ever, 100% covered in chocolate, delicious protein bars that come in so many good flavors. They have a puff variety that are marshmallow-infused. They have like sweet flavors like pies and cookie dough and my favorite the peanut butter brownie that are already good they have some fruity ones they have some churro ones cinnamony i could go on forever and most protein bars i've gotten at the store before just kind of suck or they're like a weird boxy shape that doesn't make sense these look like candy bars they taste like candy bars they're 100 covered in chocolate they're delicious and check out the macros on their website for more but most of them have 130 calories four grams of sugar four net carbs and 17 grams of protein so they're really good there's a flavor for everybody and they're healthy i mean why would you not try them just give them a shot like many listeners of this podcast have, go to Built.com, use the promo code LOCKED15, and you'll get 15% off your order of Built Bars. That promo code, again, is LOCKED15 for 15% off at Built.com. Thank you, as always, for making Locked on Pacers your first 
listen every single day. Go check out maybe Locked on Celtics for your second listen today. Hear how they're taking the loss to Indy and Marcus Smart getting unhappy with the refs. He was hanging out on the court for like five minutes after the game just to talk to refs. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Pretty interesting stuff on the Celtics side. But this is the Pacers show, and this is another Tyrese Halliburton segment because we got to see him play with Malcolm Brogdon, perhaps the story of the team for the rest of the season. Maybe I'm overdoing that, but I mean, if those two fit well together, the Pacers could jump back to being good pretty quickly. It would not take very long. I mean, they just beat Boston handily on their home court without Miles Turner, without TJ Warren. It's not hard to see how those two together being good could make this team dangerous quicker than a lot of people think. So I want to talk about that pairing, plus Tyrese Halliburton and Isaiah Jackson's pairing. First game with Brogdon plus Halliburton. Quite frankly, the plus-minus does not do it justice. Minus six, okay. Meh. They got destroyed in the first half. OKC had a 40-point second quarter. Terrible defense from the Pacers that quarter. And those two are not blameless in that all. Malcolm Brogdon was out of the game for a lot of that poor stretch. Dwayne Washington's defense was oof. Oof for a lot of that stretch. But either way. Those two did not do well defensively in that game. They did do well offensively. They fit well together. And what they did is something that Mark Dagnall was talking about before the game for those two. But he was actually talking about Josh Giddey and Shea Gilgis-Alexander and how they work for the Thunder because they've talked about, in OKC, getting Shea off ball more. And that doesn't mean Shea touches the ball less. That means Shea is attacking the defense from a situation where he's off ball first, catches, and then is attacking a defense that is bent or shifted or something. That is sort of how Rick and how the Pacers have made this Bragdon Halberton thing go. Some of it is Hallie brings it up more. I don't think that's a debate after two games. And he attacks and can set up plays. Brogdon brings it up. Sometimes those two have their own decisions on who does that. Maybe it's whoever has more energy. Maybe it's whoever has a better matchup. Whatever Rick said, they are somewhat autonomous in who makes those decisions. But Halliburton can create a little bit, and then he's got the skip. He can hit Brogdon in the weak side corner. Malcolm can shoot. Malcolm can bring it up to the top and set up his own thing. The defense is in a different spot. Maybe there's a switch. Who knows? That's the kind of stuff that can make them dangerous. Plus, Brogdon's a very good defender. Defended Jason Tatum pretty well for times in the Celtics game. He's just a very good player. Rick Carlisle talked very highly of Malcolm Brogdon. He said the key guy is Brogdon. When Malcolm Brogdon plays, we are a different basketball team I don't think that's a secret he's very good I've talked very highly of Malcolm Brogdon on the show for a while the second game with Halliburton plus Brogdon they play Boston plus 16 with those two on the court against the sixth team sixth ranked team in the Eastern Conference they smoked them with Halliburton and Brogdon on the court those two combined in that game 44 points 14 assists 10 rebounds just four assists they shot a combined 15 for 25 the blueprint looks obvious to me and it's sort of like what Mark Degnall was describing with Shea and Giddy. They can either one of them can take it up. They can hit skip pass to their guy, which makes the defense bent. They're attacking against a different set defense. It's very easy to me. It's not that confusing that it could work. And again, I get why you'd want Halliburton to be the guy with the ball more, especially if you're a younger team who's developing. Okay, that's fine. But Brogdon has relinquished some touches. One and two, he has been leading the second unit more. Something I asked him about after the OKC game that. He likes, you know, he can then do his point guard duties. He can keep that second unit junk together and something he likes and something that I think more NBA teams are doing now is sticking one or two vets and starters with the second unit. So that unit is better, has more talent with it. Having Brogdon with that group certainly seems like a good way to do that. It worked very well against Boston, especially in the second quarter. They had Brogdon in with that second unit with a ton, a ton of success. They were a big, they won that quarter 39, 25 and Brogdon was a big part of that. And he was their second highest plus minus guy. 
for a reason. So I still think, one, that they found a way to stagger Halliburton and Brogdon, and two, they look good together. Now, the other concern people had was who's going to have the, you know, oh, if Brogdon's taking it up and having the ball, that's going to hurt Halliburton's touches. Okay, I hear that. 103 touches per game for Halliburton in the four games pre-trade deadline. You know how many he had against the Thunder? 102. Is that one touch changing his whole development? No, it's not. The Boston one was not in NBA.com yet for me to get the touches, but against the Celtics, he had 12 shots and nine assists. He definitely had to ball just as much as usage rate was higher based on how usage rates are tracked, which is not a good way of seeing how much someone touches the ball, but whatever was higher than it was in the OKC game. I don't think that's a thing. I don't think he's going to have less touches playing with Brogdon. In fact, he could have more advantageous touches when he does have the ball. So assuming that trend continues, again, it's been two games, I very much like the early returns from the Brogdon-Halbert pairing. Seeing how it can be the rest of the season is very important for the Pacers and seeing what it could be potentially next season if they stick together. Again, very important for the Pacers. The other Tyrese Halbert and duo I liked, I can't believe I didn't see this as a better fit earlier, was Halbert and Isaiah Jackson. Halbert can throw a pass anywhere at any time. Excellent with these little shimmy lobs in the lane. And Isaiah Jackson is an insane role man dunker. And they fit very well together. Isaiah Jackson getting much better at screening recently. And those two have fit very well together. Three assists so far from Halliburton to Jackson. All three have ended in a shot. Two feet are in. Two of them were dunks. Two of them were lobbed in the third quarter specifically against Boston. Those two just, it makes sense. It's vertical spacing and a great passer. It's a guy who in the lane can hit a floater. And he has the funky floater that I talked about last week with Greg Doyle, where you can't tell if you're shooting your passing until the last second, so you kind of have to hesitate. And that can help a guy like Jackson who can really jump out of the gym. Defensively, they fit well together as smart, heady defenders who are both athletic and speedy. I love that fit. I can't believe that's not something I saw earlier. I'll be really tracking those minutes as well, especially because it seems like Isaiah Jackson, until Turner returns, will be the starting center. Uh, That's not like stunning, but not what I thought would happen. So a good opportunity for Isaiah to grow and having a guy like Halliburton, who definitely in the NBA, best lob thrower he's ever played with, will certainly be a good tandem. You know, Halliburton talked about playing with Rashawn Holmes, who's one of the best, if not the best, push shot mid-range guys as a a guy who's been able to throw passes like that to his whole career. So he has some experience with those little tossy in the lane passes. I think him and Isaiah Jackson will fit extremely well together. Plus three against Boston. Those two were on the floor together like before that game because they'd played a little bit before the All-Star break. Plus 26 prior to that. So they're 20, plus 29 now through three games together, four games together. I forget which ones Jackson was and wasn't injured for before the break. But that just makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, their skills are obviously complementary. And to see them pair well together, you know, especially – and maybe it just stands out because the Pacers haven't had this in a while. But especially it stands out because alley-oops are not something that the Pacers have – really succeeded at in in past seasons, some because they haven't had a good great lob threat and some because they haven't had good lob passers. Now they have both, and they're both starting and playing together at the same time. I think we're going to see some good stuff from Halliburton plus Jackson going forward on both ends of the floor, really. And we, they showed that against Boston. I mean, if they if those two who are both young can, can provide plus minutes and plus lineups against the Celtics, mainly the Celtics starters, because Isaiah Jackson, pretty much most of his stints were against the starters in the in the early parts of the first and third quarter, that seems very promising for them and, and what they could be going forward, especially if Isaiah and Halliburton can both play different positions. They could share the court for quite some time in the future. So that's another duo I'll be tracking the rest of the season. Duarte will be mixed in with any combo of those guys. You know, one lineup that I thought looked good against OKC 
was Lance Brogdon Halliburton. A lot of ball handling there. Duarte can provide something similar. Definitely not as good of a passer as Lance Halliburton. It's not about a better score. So seeing how all that stuff plays in, how Duarte fits in with the Jackson plus Halley groups will certainly be worth monitoring the rest of the season. And the early return suggests could go pretty well. Speaking of Isaiah Jackson, how does he fit in to the front court rotation? If you listened last Friday, Tyler Smith and I talked about one of the things that the Pacers should focus on the rest of the season is how does Goga fit in to their team, their rotation? How does he fit in? How does he look with their new roster? How can he look going forward? Because if he can't prove it with this new team, he's probably not going to shake it with any team or the Pacers next season. And we've seen varying stuff from the Pacers' front court, and I frankly am a little confused. I asked Rick about it, but I don't get a perfect answer there. So let's talk about Rick Carlisle's front court rotation what it means going forward, what I would do going forward, not that that matters, but just with my own thoughts on this. But before we talk about that, let's talk about the good folks over at Bet Online because football is over. It has been for a few weeks now, but basketball is full steam ahead for both pro and college hoops. It's March tomorrow. March Madness on the horizon. For the latest odds, totals, player performance, props, and where the next fired coach is going to land, BetOnline.net is the number one spot. For all your sports betting needs, BetOnline remains the best spot for all your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline.net is your source for hockey, boxing, UFC odds, right to the Olympic coverage and information. Whatever you need, they've got it at BetOnline.net. Head over to that website today or use your mobile device to sign up and see more about the trends and the action at BetOnline.net. BetOnline is where the game starts. Thank you, everybody, for making Locked On Pacers your first listen every single day. Let's talk about Rick Carlisle's front court rotation. But before you, we do that, let me t- interest you in a second listen. The Locked On NBA show about the tankers. I was on this. And Locked On NBA teared off all the teams in the NBA, and we discussed where our teams are headed and how things could be going and what teams made the best trades and things like that. And if you want to listen to the Pacers' perspective in the tankers group with the Rockets, the Pistons, the Magic, and more... Go check out Lockdown NBA. I highly recommend that show every day. Anyway, Rick Carlisle's front court rotations this weekend. Really, the Pacers. I don't want to put this on Carlisle and say he's making all these decisions. These are all collaborative choices. He makes the in-game calls, but what goes into that is certainly not just a one-man decision and involves the players as well. So, Isaiah Jackson started both games this weekend. He played 22 minutes and 44 seconds against the Thunder. He played 20 minutes and 13 seconds against the Celtics. He had four fouls against the Celtics. That is important to include in here. That certainly limited his minutes. So I'm okay with Isaiah not playing a ton, actually, if he starts. But then the second unit against the Thunder, Terry Taylor played 18 minutes and 40 seconds. And then against the Celtics, Terry Taylor played zero minutes. Okay, he got in for garbage time for two minutes, fine. But I was going to say zero because for the portion of the game that matters and the rotation is interesting, Terry Taylor did not play. That was interesting. Goga Batadze. Let's talk about the opposite. Against the Thunder, Goga played a minute 28, and about two or three seconds of those were just him in for rebounding after Lance fouled out in overtime. And then against the Celtics, Goga plays 16 and a half minutes. Played a very good defensive second half, but could not finish very well. Only got five rebounds. And then there's Jalen Smith. Jalen Smith, 28-16. 28-48, excuse me against the Thunder, leading all bigs in the available rotation, 25-54 against the Celtics, also leading all bigs in the rotation in minutes. So, very random, right? Isaiah Jackson's foul trouble makes this a little confusing. 
But Terry Taylor goes from playing to not playing at all. And Jalen Smith goes from barely playing in the first half to closing the game and playing a ton. And Gilgo plays from playing a lot to not playing at all. So lots to package here. Why is this the case? Well, Isaiah starting, I guess I get that. He probably has – actually, no, I, there's no I guess. I definitely get that. In theory, he has the most years left in his NBA career. He'll be on the Pacers. He's growing with a young core. He certainly looks like the most promising of these guys. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Start him. And playing him about half the game makes sense. That gives you time to get your other bigs on the floor. Now, before the All-Star break, playing Jalen Smith a lot made a lot of sense to me. O'Shea Brissett was at the three. They were already desperate for small forwards, right? They had a bunch of injuries. Isaiah Jackson was hurt. Goga was hurt. They couldn't get anyone in the, in the game at the four spot because of who was hurt and who wasn't, right? Now, they have other guys back. Duarte's back. He can play the three. That means Brissett can play the four now. Uh, you know, Jackson and Goga are back. So Jalen Smith, I mean, I get playing him a lot. He's played, again, he played well both games this weekend. 16 and 6 against OKC. 12 and 10 against the Celtics. Like, he he's he's looks like he's a good player, especially if he's hitting threes. If he plays a lot, though, he's going to play himself out of the Pacers' price range. And so that's why it's surprising to me that not only is he playing a lot, he's playing the most of any big. When Terry Taylor is on this team and could be a restricted free agent this summer and could be on the team next year, also looks good in his minutes, 7-4 and four against OKC in those minutes, right? Seems like he should be playing almost every game. In fact, he should be playing every game. And Goga, even if you're not going to start him, figure it out. Like you, you, His whole career, he can't get on the floor because he's behind Turbonis and they're trying to win. They're not trying to win anymore, and they traded Sabonis. If he can't get on the floor now, that's fine. But then just admit he's not going to – that's admitting white flag he's not on the team next year. He's not in the NBA next year. I mean, he can't – if he can't help this team, what team can he help? And I think they discovered that against Boston they should be playing him as the backup five. That's great. They played him 16 minutes and 20 seconds. He had four fouls. He had two in the first half and and couldn't play as much. I bet they wanted him to get closer to the 20 minutes they gave Isaiah. So I I – I suppose I understand. So here's what Rick said. I asked him about the front court rotation, right? It's a, it's kind of the same stuff it's going to be for the guard. And he's experimenting. I talked about this earlier. It's going to be the kind of the same stuff for the guards. But, like, it's a little bit of matchup-based. It's a little bit of game flow-based. And he said, and I agree with this, actually, with a young and building team, sometimes momentum swings will cause you to sub differently than when you're trying to win and you have vets who are good and established and all that kind of stuff. That makes sense to me, right? Like, young players are more inconsistent and a little all over the place and – When you're experimenting with their fit, sometimes who's in for the other team matters. The Pacers are learning just as we are. So I get being a little more random with this rotation, but I do not get Jalen Smith playing the most minutes of any big. I don't get that at all. Even if you – like when they were forced to play before the All-Star break, that's fine. You know, you have to play. Someone has to play. Okay, that's fine. They only had like nine guys or ten guys available before the break. But now they have a front court capable of playing. Two of them, all three of them, in theory, could be on the team next year in Goga, Jackson, and Taylor. And so maybe you want Jalen over Goga, but still, if that's the case, if you want Jalen Smith on your team over Goga Batadze next year, it actually makes more sense to sit Jalen Smith on the bench because that would keep his value down and make it easier because contractually it's very tough to keep him. If you want to know more on that, last Tuesday's podcast is for you. So I don't really understand the front court rotation, and I get why. With the experimenting, the minutes are going to look strange on a game-to-game basis this season. But I don't get the two constants, or the one constant being Jalen Smith leading in minutes. Terry Taylor is like the one of the best offensive rebounds in the NBA on a rate basis. And I get it's hard to play a 6'5 guy in the front court all the time. But don't you want to explore more with that? You know, he, he could be a restricted free agent. He could definitely be back on the team next year. If, if you figure it out with Goga, you know 
what what role he can play in our team next season. I know Miles Turner is going to come into the fold too and make this even more confusing. Isn't isn't figuring out with Goga pretty important? Isn't getting Isaiah Jackson in mix and match lineups sometimes maybe even at the power forward spot where Kevin Pritchard says he can play? Isn't that important? This all seems like stuff to me that should be happening in the front court and is not. Jalen Smith is the only guy playing the both four and five, and he seems like the one that should be the most constricted and limited by external factors, and he's been the least. And let me put a little pause in here and say Jalen Smith has played very well in both of these games since the break. Very well. Deserves a ton of credit for coming to a developing team from the Suns where he can't get on the court because they're trying to win and has 16-6 and against OKC and has a really nice bounce-back second half and plus 10 was the best second-unit player against Boston with 12-10, and and a double-double. I'm not saying Jalen Smith is not good and should not be playing. He is playing well. He is showing that he might have a future in this NBA. And because of that, shouldn't it make sense not to play him for a Pacers team that can't keep him unless his value is lower? So to me, this is all confusing because it seems like a lot of goals are are in the wrong order. It seems like Jalen, pr- prioritizing playing Jalen should be very low, even if you want to develop him. I get that that's a hard balance, but it seems like that should be very low. And figuring out what you got with Goga should be very high. And finding out what Terry Taylor can be if you play him at the four more, because he's mostly played the five this season, also seems important. And playing Isaiah Jackson in two positions, maybe the four and the five, also seems important. These all seem like things I if I were in charge, would want to know more than about Jalen Smith right now. If I got Jalen Smith on the team next year and I'm the Pacers, yeah, then then I'm feeling a little better about playing him every game. But this year, not so much. So I suppose, you know, foul troubles contributed in both games to Goga, to Isaiah. Okay, that's fine. But I still think there are better allocations of minutes for the Pacers in their front court rotation. How they figure it out is, is sort of up to them. And I, I'm all for experimenting. There's a lot of conflicting goals going on. I understand that that makes this hard to get perfect. But I, I do not understand Jalen Smith leading the front court in in minutes, especially given contractually how hard it would be to keep him. And I don't get Goga barely playing at all in that OKC game. That should be something that, that doesn't happen really the rest of the way. So we'll see what Carlisle does. You know, he's very much experimental mode right now. And that might be the wrong word, you know, just mixing and matching in general. We'll see where that settles. We'll see where that gets this team going forward. I think that's smart. But for now, I remain a little head scratched by the front court rotation. Thank you, everybody, for listening today. Pacers play again tonight against the Magic. Didn't even get time to preview a game in. And previewing games will be different the rest of the season because wins and losses, not as important as wins and lessons. That's the phrasing. I stole that from someone on Twitter. I can't remember who it was. We'll see where the wins and lessons get the Pacers the rest of the season. They got the Magic tonight and Wednesday, so lots of Orlando talk coming your way. What we learn from these games is always very important. Looking ahead at the standings races, you know, it's going to be March soon. The last full month of the season. It's going to be tracked very heavily on this podcast. Lots of fun stuff coming up as usual on Lockdown Pacers. So thank you all a ton for listening. Hope you had a great weekend and a great month of February. And we will see you tomorrow.